Welcome to Defense Diaries. This is episode seven. Desperate times, desperate measures. We here at Defense Diaries are dropping this episode a bit quicker than our typical episode release schedule due to my EP Darren's son Austin's birthday, which is his 21st, and the upcoming Father's Day holiday. So we worked extra hard to get this done for you. In short, well, because we didn't want you guys out there waiting for too long. I mentioned it last episode, but it bears repeating. If you are enjoying this podcast and you would like to show your appreciation for what we are bringing to the table, we have established a Patreon page that can be found at www.patreon.com backslash Defense Diaries. So check it out and join the defense team for a bunch of exclusive content that only defense team members will be privy to. Your support not only shows us how much you care and appreciate the effort we put into the show, but it will also keep the lights on, so to speak. So let's jump back in. We left off on December 19th, and Detective Ron Adams had decided that it was crucial to the investigation to re-interview Kim Byers, the young co-worker of Rob Peast. I had raised some serious concerns about this photo receipt from Nissan Pharmacy that Lieutenant Kozenzak states that he finds at the bottom of Gacy's kitchen garbage can during the December 13th search. My concerns centered around the fact that there was absolutely no follow-up with regards to the absolutely crucial receipt on the 14th of December through and up to the 19th of December. Remember, I am going through this investigation chronologically. I am not jumping back and forth in terms of events that took place during the investigation to make it fit my narrative. No, I'm giving it to you exactly as the reports claim it went down. So Adams is wanting to interview Byers, and I have questioned the logical leap as to how Adams arrived on Byers being the person to talk to about this photo receipt, as we had heard nothing about it up until now. Let's check in with Adams and Piquel and see what they were up to shortly before Adams called the buyer's residence. Maybe that will shed some light on Adams' mindset. At 4.18 p.m. on December 19th, Adams and Piquel took a ride to Nissan Pharmacy. They arrive and saunter in. They find that the manager on duty is a woman named Linda Mertz. Adams asks Mertz if they have a logbook of the names of people that brought film in to be developed. Mertz states why, yes, we do have such a logbook. Piquel says, wonderful. Would you mind if we take a look at that logbook? Mert says, of course. And she goes back, grabs the book, and hands it over to the detectives. They flip through the book, examining it closely. And they quote, observe that envelope 36119 has been used by Kim Byers for film processing. That film was apparently placed in the envelope on December 11th, 1978. End quote which, as you all know, was the night that Rob Peast went missing. Adams and Piquel look at each other, say not a word, and Adams asks Mertz if they could bring that particular sheet from the 11th back to the station. She says, sure, but I need to have a copy brought back for the logbook itself. The detectives thank Linda Mertz, leave the store with the sheet, make a copy back at the station, and at 5.04 p.m., Piquel drives back to the pharmacy alone to return a copy of that log sheet to be placed back in the film logbook. Remember, cops write these reports weeks, sometimes months, after the actual event takes place. The reports are based on the officer's handwritten notes of the events. I will repeat this fact constantly throughout this podcast. You know why? Because it matters. That's why. 
Recall from last episode that Detective Adams calls the buyer's residence at 6 p.m. and tells Kim's mom that Kim needs to contact him, quote, in reference to Kim providing us with a statement regarding photo receipt 36119, end quote. So now we know why Adams is so hot to talk to Kim Byers. She turned in some film on the night that Rob went missing. And by the grace of God, Lieutenant Kozenzak found the corresponding photo receipt at the bottom of Gacy's kitchen wastebasket, which was once attached to the corresponding envelope that was still located at Nissan Pharmacy. What a turn of events for the team! Sure, a, a full week went by before they thought to check out with Nissan Pharmacy to see what fruit Kozenzak's little trash treasure might bear, but shit, better late than never, right? Right. So at approximately 8.23 p.m., Kim Byers comes to the police station with her father to make a statement. But before we get to that, I'm sorry, I know I keep doing that with the Byers statement, but deal with it. I need to read you another passage from Kozenzak's book, The Chicago Killer, The Hunt for Serial Killer John Wayne Gacy, published by Ex Libris in 2003. I mean, the man was running the investigation, and he wrote and published a damn book about it. Maybe it fills gaps. So I'm going to read you an excerpt from chapter 10 of that book. The chapter is entitled, The Threshold of Tragedy. This will be read verbatim. December 19th, 1978, Tuesday. On the morning of December 19th, 1978, I was confronted once again with the hardcore reality and horror of a case which from all indications would make history in the world of criminal justice. I found myself seated behind my office desk across from Mr. and Mrs. Peast. It had been eight days since Rob was last seen. As I looked at the couple, I knew I had to treat them delicately. Eight days is not a tremendous length of time, but I had a fairly good insight into Rob's parents, and I knew that they were hurting badly. The Peace said hello and tried to appear calm. For Elizabeth Peace, this was an act that was becoming harder and harder to maintain. I knew her well by now. Almost every night after work, I would stop by their house and give them a report. More than once, she had served me dinner, even if I turned up at 10 p.m., she would make me a cup of coffee and ask me calmly how things were going. Watching her had taught me something about standing up to adversity. This morning, Harold Peace was frowning, and I noticed he was in one of his let's-get-something-done-fast moods. I told him the latest news. I could see in his eyes that he knew his son was dead. Knew it and wouldn't admit it. The Peace were well aware of everything I'd discovered and there was little doubt in their minds that Gacy was a killer. They started telling me about their own investigation, offering little bits of information that might somehow fit into the total picture. Just as the conversation was winding down, Mrs. Peast looked at me and mentioned Kim Byers, the girl who had worked with Rob at Nissan Pharmacy. Does she have any new information, I inquired. No, not really. She was just telling me that Rob had something of hers the day he... Yes? What was that? Well, it's a little complicated, Lieutenant. She says she got cold and she put on Rob's jacket while she was working. Then she decided to leave some film for developing and, well, she thinks she forgot and put the receipt for it in Rob's jacket pocket because she's never seen it since. So I just thought maybe that would help. 
You mean the jacket that he was wearing when he disappeared? Yes, of course. Kim gave him back the jacket later, but she left her film receipt in his pocket. Wait one minute, I said suddenly, and jumping up, bolted down the hall to the polygraph room. There, in a clear plastic bag, shining like a piece of gold, was the bright red receipt I had plucked out of John Wayne Gacy's garbage bag. I brought it back to the piece and explained, and then I called in Ron Adams and Walter Lang. This was the first and only piece of evidence we had showing that the Peast Boy had even been in the house on Somerdale. I felt as if I had just dropped a noose around the burly contractor's neck. First, we had to make sure this was the right receipt. So we got the envelope containing Kim Byer's film from the photo lab and sent it off with the receipt to the Cook County Crime Lab in Maybrook for processing. Next, on examination, Kim Byer's entry on Nissan's film log sheet, we were able to match the receipt number to the order number. Meanwhile, through analysis of fibers, the crime lab was able to determine that the receipt and the envelope had been joined. We were advancing in the right direction. First of all, wow, a couple of my initial observations from this passage. Kozenzak appears to be way, way too personally invested in this case. Cops must always stay arm's length away from the victims or the victims' families. Why? Because it can seriously cloud their objectivity. Cases aren't about personal feelings. They're about evidence and facts. In my profession, they call it a conflict of interest if a lawyer has an unusually close relationship with his or her client, or has too much independent knowledge about a client, or the opposing party. And typically, you are removed by a judge or you recuse yourself. So the danger with cops is, if you get too close, you feel an obligation that goes beyond your duty. It's not good practice. Moreover, it's a dangerous practice. This certainly doesn't mean that cops must be robotic and devoid of feeling. It simply means don't befriend the victims or their families so as to avoid it at all costs. There is a reason cops don't work on cases that involve their own family or friends, and that's because it hits way too close to home for them to remain objective. Speaking of which, let's get back to Kozenzak and my observations. Nightly updates the peace home. What? Eating dinner with the family on multiple occasions? What? They start telling him about their own investigation? What? He says he's at the Peast home, dining, giving updates, having delicious cups of dark roast, almost nightly. And this is the first he's heard of Kim Byers telling Mrs. Peast about a photo receipt that was left in her son's pocket? What? Does this seem completely implausible to you? It sure does to me. The Peast family, who is all over this investigation, would sit on information like that and bring it up as an aside at the end of that conversation? This has to be that creative licensing thing I was talking about last episode, you know, to add drama for effect to the book. Thankfully, I was supplied with the entire investigation file by the Displays Police. Let's review Kozenzak's report about this absolutely crucial meeting with the Peasts, where he first learns of the receipt being left in Rob's jacket by Kim Byers. 
Yeah, crickets. This investigation file is silent as to this conversation and all other fireside chats that apparently took place at the Peace home during the investigation, not only by Kozenzak, but by any detective wherein it states that Kozenzak relays this information and the receiving detective acts on it. Maybe you're at home saying, well, Bob, that must have taken place because Adams is, in fact, calling buyers that very night, asking about the photo receipt. Okay, fair enough, but where the fuck is the report saying that? And Kim Byers has the epiphany about the receipt being left in Rob's jacket, and she tells Mrs. Peast, but she doesn't call the cops? The guy's actually investigating the case? Get the fuck out of here, no way. Maybe you're thinking, so what? Who gives a shit about a report when they clearly must have gotten the information? Me, that's who. When? When the hell did this conversation between Byers and Mrs. Peace take place? Five minutes before Kozenzak got there? A week ago when Kim's memory was fresh? And where? Did Mrs. Peace go to Byers' home? The pharmacy? Was it a phone call? This is the most important piece of evidence in the case against one of the most prolific, horrific serial killers in American history. And there are gaping holes about how in the fuck they got it and how they figured out to go look at that logbook. And there's no damn reports about any of it. You know what there are reports about? I'll tell you. There is, of course, the report from Piquel about him and Adams going on the 19th at 4.18 p.m. to ask about and examine the photo log. Kozenzak states that the first thing that they did was to make sure that it was the right receipt. So they sent it to the crime lab along with the envelope that it was attached to, except the crime lab's report states definitively that that did not occur until December 21st. There's also the report prepared by Detective Summershield stating that on December 21st, he and Adams went to Nissan to see if the envelope had been returned from the processor. The film rolls get sent out for processing. That envelope was not even at Nissan Pharmacy on the 19th. Okay, Bob, big deal. Kozenzak switched a couple of facts around. Who cares? You know who cares? I do. And you should too. It's that chain of custody issue that I was talking about last episode. It's a big deal. We're supposed to follow the travels of each and every piece of evidence without a break in the custodial chain. Here, not only is there a break in the custodial chain, there's not even a chain. No chain! You're probably listening and thinking, relax, Bob, and that I'm being kind of a huge dick towards Kozenzak. The man is a hero after all. Well, maybe, maybe not. Whatever do you mean, Bob? In due time, my friends, in due time. These reports that I just spoke of, the ones that exist at least, will be posted for the defense team members on our Patreon page. So I'm done torturing you. Let's hear what Kim Byers has to say about all this. Inquiring minds want to know. On the night of December 11th, 1978, I worked from about 5.20 to 10. I brought in with me an envelope of pictures and negatives from homecoming 1975. My sister wanted copies of some of these pictures. I decided it would make a nice Christmas present. They were pictures of me and my boyfriend, so I'd have to have them done soon. So about 7.30, the store was kind of quiet. It would be a good time to put my order in for the pictures. 
I went to my bag and got the envelope out. I walked over to the counter, took an envelope, and began to fill it out. The order I wanted was confusing. One of number three and one, and five by seven of number three. Normally, you could put the order in different envelopes, but I couldn't cut the negative. Anyhow, I ended up throwing out two envelopes because of explanatory mistakes. I finally was satisfied with the way I wrote it up, envelope 36119. I then recorded it into the logbook, took the tab off, and put the envelope into the bag on the side of the counter. I stood there for a second dumbfounded, not knowing what to do with the stub. I would normally either throw it out or put it onto a hook behind the counter. But these pictures meant a lot to me, and for some reason, I thought I shouldn't throw it out. I started to stick on the hook. I hesitated, and then I stuck it into Rob's pocket of his jacket, the right one. I was wearing his jacket because I had on a short sleeve shirt, and it was very cold. I really don't know why I did. Maybe I meant it as kind of a joke, or maybe just to put responsibility on him, not to take the ticket. I think the most probable reason I put it in his pocket was that I intended him to find it, ask me about it, and I would remember to take it home. Anyway, I had second thoughts about putting it into his pocket, thinking he would say something like, Kim, what did you put this in my pocket for? But for some reason, I decided to leave it there. A while later, Rob came to the front and asked for his jacket to take the garbage out. I gave it to him. Then the next time I saw the jacket off of him was when he was working the front. It was on top of the cases of cigarettes. Then, of course, when he left, he grabbed it and walked out. Hey, y'all, Bob here. So I just want to let you guys know why I love Nom Nom, the sponsor of the show. That's because our dog, Nanook, who's been an intricate part of our family for the last four years, is the pickiest eater out of any dog on the planet. We would give him the best of the best in terms of dry food, and the guy just was not having it. That all changed when the first box of Nom Nom came to our house. I cut open the package. I like to treat him a little bit, so I heat it up just a little bit, put it in a bowl, gone instantly. Every single time, the dude loves Nom Nom. I can tell by the way he just devours it because I've never seen a meat like that before. And the reason that he loves it is because that Nom Nom's made with real wholesome ingredients that you can see when you pour it into the bowl. It's like you can actually see the meat, you can see the vegetables. It's unbelievable. And they personalize it to your dog's needs. So it brings out their very best. I mean, this guy has boundless energy these days. I bring him out on his walks and he's doing all the things that he loves to do. He's running and jumping and playing, tails going a million miles an hour. It's an amazing product and it really has changed our dog's life and our dog is such a huge, huge part of our life. It makes me feel good about what we've been able to do for him. So I cannot recommend more. If you have a dog in your life, treat them. Treat them like the king or the queen that they are in your family and go right now for 50% off for your no risk two week trial at nom.com slash DD. That is N O M.com slash DD for 50% off with a guaranteed return if your dog doesn't love it. And I can guarantee you, you're not going to be returning anything. Again, that is nom.com slash DD for 50% off. You can thank me later. Holy smokes. That is a detailed statement. I sure the hell would like to know when she recollected all of that. I mean, the statement itself has the date and the time at the top of the page. According to what I'm looking at, this teenage kid starts writing this incredibly thorough statement at 8.29 p.m., six minutes after she arrived at the police station. It's almost as if the statement had been written out ahead of time. Clearly, there must have been conversations between Kim and her parents, or Kim and the cops. And I guess 
him and Mrs. Peast, at least according to Kozenzak. So at the very least, this couldn't have been the first time she had regurgitated the story. It's just too thorough. It's too perfect. Kind of. Just so you know, the outside temperature at 5 p.m. on December 11th, 1978, was three degrees. This is when Kim left for work. Kim Byers, in an article written by her daughter, Courtney Lund O'Neill, in Harper's Bazaar, which was published October 31st, 2018, claims that she forgot her jacket that night when she left for work. Three degrees. And that's why she had to borrow Rob's jacket. Three degrees. Factually speaking, almost everything related to the case in that article was inaccurate. It was a blue ski jacket, not a parka that Rob was wearing. Oddly enough, they actually found a blue parka on the search on the 13th. Not Rob's coat, though. She does reinforce, however, that Joe Kozenzak found the receipt in the house during a superficial search. Huh? But she claims that the receipt itself contained Kim's name, phone number, and address. Wrong, wrong, and wrong. That receipt had none of that information on it. That pic is posted on defensediaries.com. Check it out. The one thing she absolutely nailed in the article, though, was that, quote, the receipt would be the leading piece of evidence to uncover the multitude of bodies buried under Gacy's home in his crawl space, end quote. So I have so many questions that I want, no need to ask Kim Byers, but she just won't do it. I referenced the handwritten notes of Detective Adams from his interview of Kim Byers on the 12th. She gives a list of everything that Rob was wearing down to his belt buckle. And in his notes, Adams jots down that Rob had in his pocket. You guessed it. Oh, no you didn't. It wasn't the receipt. It was grape chapstick. No, Adams' handwritten notes do not mention the photo receipt. That note is available for review by our defense team members on Patreon as well. If it seems like I'm trying to bait you into joining the team, well, of course I am. Complete transparency here. Before we call it a day, let's check in with Schultz and Robinson and see what the surveillance team is up to this evening. Okay, at, uh, on the 20th, uh, Lang advises of uh, the amount in the Gacy crawl space. Our Schultz advises a putrid order detected on the previous day. And Lang got that information as to the mounds in the crawl space in talking to, uh, to Rossi. Gacy had had him digging a trench in the crawl space, and he, and he deviated from that. Uh, from where John told him to dig, and John was very upset with him for doing that and uh, corrected him on it, had him uh, repair what he had done and go back to it. He noticed that there was one mound that was like a, a foot higher than the others, like it was newer, but then he, he noticed that when he really uh, took in a view of the entire crawl space that there were there were numerous mounds in there, and... Uh, Cram actually did draw a diagram uh, and gave it to uh, Kozenzak of uh, of the uh, of the mounds he had seen and uh, 
um, in the crawl space. Oh. So the creep invites the guys in again. They take him up on the offer again, except this time they had a plan. And that was to see if the serial number on the portable TV in Gacy's bedroom matches up with the serial number that was on the warranty card that Zig's mother had given to the displaced police. I informed John that I was going to use the front washroom and then walked into the front. As soon as I slid open the door, which John had previously closed, I detected a foul odor which smelled similar to defecation in the worst form. To cover any sounds that might carry, I went into the washroom, closed the door. While in the washroom, the furnace kicked on and the odor which I had detected in the hallway became extremely strong and was definitely coming from the heat register duct. I continued to make a little noise and flushed the toilet about three times. However, while the third flush was taking place, I entered John's room to search for the TV and radio. I was able to locate the TV sitting on the dresser. A little worried about John catching me in the act, I was only able to read the model number and not the serial number. The radio was, not, was nowhere in sight. He then returned to the, the family room. His eyes were rolling, and he was kind of hitting to me that, Brian, don't you think you should go use the bathroom now? which I did, but now I detected the odor too, but it was not near as strong because now the heat wasn't running, the furnace wasn't running, which is what really brought it up. So, yeah, I smelled it, but not to the degree that Bob did. And yet when, uh, this was the day that we also, after we left Casey's house, we lost him. And then Bob told me about it. And, uh, he was absolutely, positively sure that, that those were dead bodies that he was smelling. And uh, I'd be honest, I would have taken that to the bank because we had both smelled dead bodies. We knew what they smelled like. And it's just an odor you just don't forget. Yeah, you know? Schultz gets so close to confirming, but his nerves about Gacy spying him, sneaking around, that he decides to shut it down without being able to confirm that the two TVs are a match. However, while he's in the bathroom, pretending to take a dump, the heater kicks in, and boy, oh boy, something stinks. Bad. At least that's the story as it's been told over the past 40 years. Let's see what Pogo has to say about the potential rancid smells wafting up from the crawl space. My reason for putting my yes. window down? I had talked to Bob Welcome and told him that ever since I moved into the house, we had a, a bad odor from the from uh, the, the wet clay down there. And I asked him what was the best thing to, to make clay better. He said, well, if you want to sweeten clay, the best way to sweeten clay would be to uh, put lime on it. And then all I will do, you know, it also enriches the ground. That's take away a musty odor from it. Did you put lime down there to cover the smell of bodies? No. Do you recall making a statement uh, that the lime was used to cover the smell? The bodies down there have been there a long time. No. Do you ever recall using lime for that particular reason? No. In fact, I did not know that all I would imagine would dissolve anything. But I mean, I did 
When you bury the bodies, did you ever um, throw lime on them? Yes. That's the ones that I buried in that I know. Was the lime put down there on different occasions, or was it one specific time where you covered the whole top with lime? I went down there one specific time and threw lime over the top of everything. We used seven or eight bags of lime. In fact, Rossi and Cram are the ones that did it. Do you recall when this was? In 1978, I would say June of 1978. Or earlier, it might have been May of 78. But I know Rossi and Cram, because they were drawing straw food without doing it. Okay. But they were pissed off because they wanted to go home. Your intention was not to cover up order of bodies. No. Was there, in fact, ever any order of bodies that you can, you know, putrefied order? No. in the house. No, it was always the same order. So Gacy says no way. And Schultz is pretty confident that he smelled something that sure ain't mildew. We need to look into this a lot more carefully. And we will in the very near future. Because that photo receipt and the smell become the entire basis for the second warrant to get back into Gacy's house. And finally, it's time for thank yous and shout outs. First and foremost, I have to give a shout out to my main man's main man, Austin, his son, on his 21st birthday. Austin, I hope you have an amazing day and an even more spectacular year. And I've got to thank all my people. So first and foremost on that, Darren Wood, my EP, the man who makes it all happen, behind the screens. Taras Horolewski, who produces and makes all that wonderful music that we hear every week. And Ryan Gack, who mixes and masters it. Uh, we also have Alex Carver, who is our graphic designer and does all the great imagery for us. And Allison Mata, the wizard behind the curtain, who makes sure that you can find us out there. And finally, to my beautiful daughter, Cameron, who played the part of Kim Byers in this episode, and I thought she killed it. Thank you guys for listening. As always, we love you, we cherish you, and without you, I would just be an old man talking about an old case. Thanks. Talk to you next episode. Happy birthday, Austin. And last but not least, we need to thank PreSonas for their wonderful sponsorship of our little show and Studio One Professional Recording Software, which, if you want a creative DAW that's great for writing, recording, mixing, and mastering, this is the product for you. Thanks, guys.